Welcome to What Are You Hungry For? The podcast about food, of course, but also connections, curiosity, discovery, and more. I'm your host, Nancy Martz, co-founder and executive director of Apples to Zucchini Cooking School, where our mission is to teach children and their families how to prepare delicious, nutritious, affordable meals made from real food. I've been passionate about cooking and eating for as long as I can remember. Five years ago, I came to the conclusion that the current generation of kids was not learning how to cook. Home ec classes had been disappearing when I was in high school back in the 1980s. So we have a generation of parents who didn't learn how to cook. How can they be expected to teach their kids? In our classes, we teach essential cooking skills like knife safety, how to crack an egg and avoid cross-contamination, how to boil, saute, and roast, and why it's important to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Once we've cooked our meal, we sit down together and enjoy it. Finally, the kids help wash the dishes and put the kitchen back together. During COVID, we've been teaching our classes outdoors. It's been great to be in the garden where kids can see just where their food is coming from today. I'm really excited about today's guest. Tina Wood was born and raised in Santa Barbara. She holds a BA from UCSB in political science and an MS in nutrition science from California State University at Northridge. She has over 20 years of sales and marketing experience spanning corporate aviation, pharmaceutical and nutrition industries, including running her own company, Baby Bistro Brands, where she created and marketed her products, the Baby Bistro Box and the Toddler Bistro Box. She's written two books and numerous nationally published children nutrition articles. Tina and her husband have two daughters. Welcome, Tina. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. It's a great chance to chat. I know. With COVID, we've hardly been able to see each other. So something I learned in your bio, this was new. I did not know that you have a degree in political science from UCSB. I do. I was actually on a pre-law track until I got off that and then decided to kind of answer my calling a passion for nutrition. I was always fascinated by nutrition and wanted to learn the science behind it, um, the chemistry behind it, and actually how to prevent disease, um, nutritional programming when you are an infant, even in fetal stages, depending on what your mother eats and what babies consume, it can program your health for a lifetime. That's amazing. I don't know if you knew that I have a degree in political science from UCSB. <laughs> I did not know that. that is I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if we took any of the same classes. Did you have, there was a class called SimCong, Simulated Congress. I didn't. I wish I had. That sounds really good. It was amazing. Every, it was, I was probably a junior or a senior. And everyone took on the role of an actual current member of Congress. So you had to put forward bills the kind that they would, and then you would have to vote the way they would. So you kind of had to know like, well, on fiscal things, they go this way. And it was fascinating. And this was before the internet, because that's when you and I were in college before the internet. So I had a dial up to LexisNexis. And we could dial in and research bills. And it was all like in, you know, computer code. And this was back when we shared one phone line with our roommates in an apartment. So I'd wait until everyone was in bed and all the phone calls were done and nobody's boyfriends were calling. And then I would dial up, right? Remember that? And then I would research this stuff. So yeah. I I loved, I thought the political science program at UCSB was great. 
It was, it was really well developed. They had some incredible professors. That sounds like a great class. It's kind of like an advanced schoolhouse rock. Where's the bill go? And how do you deal with it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it seems to me like for you, understanding kind of that machine, how do you look then at like our country's nutrition policies and farm policies? Does 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 your degree in political science inform any any of your um, work in that area? It does. It's certainly, there's an angle of wanting to see agriculture um, be a little bit more diverse and our crops that we produce uh, from a nutritional standpoint, it would be nice if they weren't just massively shipped overseas and we had some kind of policy where it was something where local communities and farmers were encouraged to produce foods for their communities instead of trying to make the bottom dollar and ship overseas, which isn't good for many different reasons. Um, many different reasons. Yeah. yeah I, I think it certainly has framed, framed my perspective on, on those things. And also, yeah, nutritionally there's, there's like what four different kinds of wheat that we have now in the market where, you know, that back in the day when agriculture was just starting up, we had 20 and it's wow. reasons, not, not good to have such few strains or, or genetic strains of food. It's just, we need variety in our diet. It's right. Really, I think what, what you're hitting on is really interesting that we need variety, not just, not just the obvious ones, like I need a starch and a vegetable and a meat, but you're saying even within each of those, there's important differences. Exactly. I mean, because if you have only one kind of wheat all your life, you're going to develop an algae to it. There's an overexposure to that. And people that go to other countries and have foods that are more diverse, they end up not having an allergy to that same food that they have here because we have such few strains of certain mass produced foods. That's fascinating. I, I, the intersection of how our bodies interact with our environment is, is really fascinating. I want to jump into the, to your, your publishing experience. You've written two books and numerous magazine articles and you published your adorable recipe cards Tell me about that experience and, and that, that journey. Well, I was finishing up my master's and during my graduate program, I became fascinated with fetal development and brain development. And at the time, like how you were saying, you noticed that kids are not learning how to cook anymore and we don't, we don't cook at home. At that time, there was really no information for parents and mothers that were pregnant on what to eat, what their infants needed. There wasn't any information about DHA, which is a long chain omega-3 fatty acid that is really important for brain development. And it's the most abundant fatty acid in our brains and babies really need it during development. So I felt like Given that, and given that my friends were starting to have babies and, and asking me, because they knew I was in nutrition, like, I don't know what to eat. And then once my baby's born, I don't know what to feed the baby. Is it okay to feed them this? When can I give them cow milk? You know, what do I do? And I started looking for resources to tell them to get. And then I realized that aside from my complex textbooks and then a few magazine articles, there really wasn't anything out there for them. So Tina, what year was this? It was about 2000. 
2001, I graduated. So the internet existed, but it was not the, the massive library that it is today. Right. Right. So I just went to work. I decided I wanted to make a broad impact and disseminate this information in, I used to call it my sugar coated pill, like a fun package kind of um, product where people would think it's fun and it's fun to read and, but it's very useful and it provides information that they're craving. So I put together what I did, the baby bistro box, which was like on recipe cards in a box, but it had not just recipes that had, you know, food safety advice and environmental advice and how to make your own baby food. If you wanted to do that, um, brand suggestions, if you didn't, and then nutrients, specific nutrients that were important during the first year. And then as I went in to that, as I launched that, I had tons of mothers and parents come up to me and say, please do a toddler one. <laughs> because as we all know, once we become parents, toddlers start to become picky and they stop eating things that they were eating just perfectly before. Do you know why that is? There are lots of theories. One is that it's kind of this prehistoric, prehistoric instinct that they have because they're at the age where they're more picking up things and putting things in their mouth that they naturally are um, pushing away things that taste weird or or are funny texture or something like that. So there's some kind of like self-preservation theory there. Um, The other thing is that they start, I think what I think makes more sense is that they, they just start developing their own sense of, of independence a little bit. They, they want to make their own choices. And that's a big thing with toddlers is giving them a choice. You know, if you want them to eat something, give them a choice between two healthy things instead of just give them one and then they'll end up eating something. Right. Right. (laughs) And so, so how old are your daughters now and, and where are they kind of on that picky and adventurous spectrum? Mine are 11 and nine. I have Bryn who's 11 and Lakin who's nine. And they both eat a good variety of foods. Of course, like most parents, they don't eat the same foods that they, they like. Right. But I just bought a whole bushel of these things because you liked it yesterday. Uh, exactly. At least they like healthy foods, but they don't like the same healthy foods. So I have a big variety, but we talk about, you know, having a rainbow on the plate and how many colors are on our plate. My daughter, my younger daughter, nine, my nine-year-old doesn't like fresh fruit. It's insane for me as a nutritionist to have a child. That no, not just a nutritionist, fruit. but a nutritionist in Santa Barbara <laughs> where know, there's amazing like stuff. <laughs> so luckily she loves vegetables. So I don't really feel like it's a problem. I just kind of keep putting it out there every now and then. And maybe someday she will <laughs> eat fruit. She used to when she was a baby, but just doesn't like it anymore. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So, okay. Now I want to go back to the baby stuff and the mother stuff. And I want to ask you a question and see if there's, if it makes any sense. When I was pregnant with my younger one, who's now 14, when I was pregnant with him, I craved fruit, especially berries. I remember being like in restaurants and, you know, it was time for dessert and I'd look at the menu and it was like flan and chocolate cake. And I would, do you have any fruit? I just, I just need some fruit, anything, anything, whatever you have, just. And then this same kid is addicted to fruit. Is, is there something there? Was I, was he addicted to fruit as a baby in utero? 
It's there isn't any research that shows whether the chicken or the egg came first, but there is research that shows a correlation between what the mother ate when she was pregnant and then what the child prefers when they're born. So you ate a lot of fruit. He, his taste preferences were for fruit when he was. Well, and I was, I craved bean and cheese burritos with my old yeah. one. And man, that kid will put refried beans on just about anything. So maybe, yeah, there's, maybe there's some truth to it. I, um, I, I, well, for sure there's truth about what you eat during your pregnant. It does frame the taste preferences of the child. And there's, there's links to moms who eat a lot of junk food. Their child ends up wanting to eat sugar and junk food. Okay. But I guess my, my argument to that would be if mom ate, let's, let's say it's a a surrogacy, for example, and mom ate a lot of junk food. So now the child's growing up in another household. Mm -hmm. Obviously if the kid's growing up in the same household, of course he's eating a lot of junk food because that's what mom eats. I guess my question would be if the child gets adopted by somebody else, are is that one kid in this household addicted to junk food and the rest of them aren't? I would be so curious to know about that. That would be interesting. I mean, my guess would be there would be a taste preference for it, but if it's not provided within that environment, then probably it, the environment would outweigh the you know genetic preference. It's interesting. As you know, we lived in Austria for two years and the food there, while delicious, tends to be on the milder side. So we would go to an Asian restaurant or a Mexican restaurant and eat, we would order something spicy and they would say, oh no, it's very spicy. And we would say, we're from California. And they go, okay, you're fine. <laughs> they knew. They just, yeah. They just knew like, all right, the, the Californians, they'll eat, they'll eat anything. It was, it was really funny. Just this spice aversion. So culturally, cultural. I find that yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Cultural flavor profiles and spice profiles are fascinating. Yeah, it really, it really is. And, and the flavor combinations that different cuisines will pair together um, mm-hmm. is very curious to me. I, uh, I recently discovered a cookbook called the flavor matrix and the whole, it's like the science of flavors and tastes. And so there's like a wheel that like these flavors will go, like you wouldn't expect them to pair well. And so it isn't really a cookbook and it, it, it probably has 25 recipes in it, but it's all about, um, it's definitely written for somebody who already knows how to cook. So you look and you would say, for example, oh, cauliflower and broccoli and, and those crucifers, oh, they pair really well with the vanilla or something like these yeah. unusual flavors. So uh, it is, it's curious. And then you maybe look at that and go, oh, that's why those cultures pair those flavors because somebody realized that, that those are good together. Well, oh, that'd be a neat cookbook because I'm always wondering, you know, if just have a couple different foods and like what, what flavors can I add to it, you know, to make something unique that tastes good. Right. I am happy to loan this one to you. It is, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. It really kind of expands your mind. What are, what are some of your favorite cookbooks? What are your go-tos? I love Ina Garten. Um, she has some really, just for me, being a mom and being busy, there's some really good good dinners, good recipes that I can make, and they're not, they don't take forever to make. They're, they're mm-hmm. And they taste great. Um, I have one that's called a, the Vegan Gourmet that I like. It has more kind of the Indian flavors, curries in there that 
I really love, I enjoy, and it's a lot of beans and, you know, the vegan, vegan foods, tofu. And I like to cook with those foods as well. Um, I don't think what else. I discovered one last year called chard, C-H-A-R-R-E-D, not, not like rainbow chard, but chard like cooked. And it is a vegan barbecue cookbook. Oh, wow. It's all, it's like, put these vegetables on your grill and it's beautiful. Yeah. I highly recommend it. It's really neat. Um, In your league cookbooks too. I have a lot of those. Those Yeah. My favorite recipe out of the Santa Barbara junior league cookbook is the, um, there's an onion quiche that is, it's mm. perfect every time. So um, everybody's favorites. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's got a favorite. Exactly. Um, so here we are um, approaching the one year mark of the COVID pandemic. What are some joys that you have discovered or rediscovered in this time? Definitely for us, the silver linings have been just having more family time, less driving around in the car and taking kids everywhere and being in a hurry all the time. I really am determined not to reintroduce that into our lives. I'm going to be much more intentional about what choices we make and what activities we do and having family dinners and cooking together um, enjoying that time it always brings to mind, you know, books that I read in my graduate program. And I also did an alternative nutrition program that was based on cultural foods and eating and, and some science. Um, and it makes me think about how when we cook together and we share food together, it's the most primitive form of love, you know, and community. And it's what we need to live, right? So we're sharing this time together and we're sharing, you know, a vital commodity that we are enjoying. And I just, I love that. I think about that a lot. Like it just really is truly a connection of, of love. And so I've enjoyed that too. And really, really. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think it's really true. The food is that connection of love. You know, I'm, Oh, if you're sick, I'll bring you some chicken noodle soup and on Valentine's I'll give you chocolate dipped strawberries. I mean, there's definitely, love that we are and a chocolate chip cookie is like the epitome of, of love in a, in a bite. But I also feel like this community, when we talk about community, whether it's just your own family or the larger community, sitting down and, and enjoying a meal together. And I've been really, I've been thinking and reading a lot about why in America do we leap up from the table the second we're done eating and, you know, in restaurants, they expect the tables to turn and, um, it's a it's a it's a fascinating question, and I'm I'm still trying to get to the bottom of it. But there is there's a, a college professor who wrote a book about it, and it's a long book, and it's fascinating the history of of eating in America. But I'm working my way through it, and I will let everybody know <laughs> what the answer is when I get when I get to the end. But it is something I think that we really miss in America that we we don't appreciate how important it is to just sit there. And talk and talk and talk and talk. Be and have that connection when you're eating. You know, be mindful <laughs> of what you're eating and chewing and just the whole process. And you know, not be in a hurry, not jump up. It is an American thing. Other cultures don't do that, and I I always admire that when I travel and I see that because I think it's so important. And 
my family and I talk about being mindful when we eat and not being in a hurry and trying to jump up off out of the table and move on to the next thing. I just think it's important to be present, you know, with your body and, and thinking about the food that you're eating and chewing the food and not gulping it down. And like you said, it is kind of an American thing that we do here and other cultures are much better about taking their time. It's just, they're not always in such a hurry. And so hopefully there's a vein of thought here in America that they are trying to push more mindful eating. And I know that there are some schools that have programs where they ring kind of like a, a, a dong, like a yoga, an Indian bell or something, a chime when they're starting to eat lunch and the kids all are quiet and then they eat. I mean, I don't know if that's going to move across America, but I think it's neat that it's starting to be out there a little more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's, there's um, to me, there's a, a push and a pull between are kids supposed to be quiet during the meal or, you know, I mean, I guess there's a mindful practice there, but at the same time, I think of the meal as, as boisterous and everybody's talking yeah. over each other. And um, so I think I would love to hear that, that gong, but it would say, now you guys get to just enjoy your meal and whether you want to talk or you don't want to talk, but take this time, you know, it's, it's not the same as being in the classroom or on the playground or something, yeah. but I, I, just somebody yeah. noticing, yeah, that we need to, we need to bring this to your attention. Yeah. Those family dinners are so important. And there's, there is a lot of research behind family dinners and children that are raised in, in homes where you can do a family dinner every now and then, and hopefully as often as you can, they have, they're, they're healthier, they have a better healthy lifestyle and they don't have as high risk for, for disease. So, and also risky behaviors. They, they, there are studies that show that teens who share at least three meals a week, I don't know that it even needs to be with family. I'm not sure, but teens who are, are enjoying at least three meals a week, um, have lower rates of risky behavior like alcohol, drug abuse, and um, early sexual activity. Yeah, so, I think it's just good yeah. to keep in mind. It's, I mean, as as a parent, it's hard. You put a lot of pressure on yourself, and you can get consumed with just the pressure of trying to make it happen every night. It doesn't have to be every night. Um, my right. husband works different hours, and sometimes he has to work late. So sometimes it's just me and the kids. Sometimes it's the kids eating and then we'll eat later, but at least a couple of times a week, we all have dinner together, you know, and it's, yeah. I think that's just important to try to try to get it in at some point. Right. So of course the name of this podcast is what are you hungry for? So my next question for you is at this moment in time, what are you, what are you hungry for? What are you craving? Whether it's a food or a place or a feeling or an activity. That's a great question. So I immediately think about food, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I guess I am a huge vegetable person. I love combinations of vegetables. So my mind goes to mixtures of beans and right now I'm a little cold. So cooked vegetables with beans and, and maybe like a stew or something like that with Parmesan cheese on it. That sounds really good. <laughs> That sounds really good. That sounds perfect. I, I just, I love going to farmer's market and seeing what they have and then oh, tossing yeah. it all together. And now a word from our sponsor. Apples to Zucchini Cooking School is sponsored by Santa Barbara Grocery Outlet Bargain Market. If you haven't been to this amazing store yet, drop what you're doing and head over there. You may know that they have low prices. They are a grocery discounter, 
but don't let that fool you into thinking you're not getting quality products. We love the store for their fantastic selection of staple items like dried fruits, nuts, oils, like avocado and olive oil, beans, tomato sauce, bread, tortillas, and more. They also have cleaning supplies and kitchen storage solutions and hand sanitizer and seasonal items. If you're looking for great products at amazing prices, you can't beat Grocery Outlet. Okay, Tina, now it's time for the lightning round. All right. <laughs> what is your spirit vegetable? Carrot. First thing that came to my mind, carrot. <laughs> carrots. Excellent. I love carrots too. What is your favorite Santa Barbara restaurant of all time? Oh, that's really hard. I'm going to fail at this lightning round. I have a lot of them. Right now, I love Oliver. I love Oliver's. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm in love with their, their vegan tostada with the mushrooms. It's so good. Oh, we had, uh, we had some, what was it? It was, it was a ravioli with a mushroom sauce. Mushroom <laughs> gravy is what they called it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah delicious. Oh, that's a, that's a very, very good choice. What is your favorite seafood? I would have to say salmon. Mm. I, I do. So I versatile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it just, it just is full of DHA omega threes. So yeah. I love, I love salmon. Yeah. yeah that's delicious. Um, what is the initial kitchen tool or gadget that you can't live without? Probably a chopping knife, a chef's knife that you can just mince things with and chop up and slice. You can do a lot with it. So I would right. say that. I use that all the time. I hear you. Are you a sweet or a savory? More savory, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would say different times in my life, maybe sweet, but now I've moved into a savory. Definitely, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, cake or pie? Cake, chocolate cake. Like not the flourless chocolate cake, not the cake that's got like the lava, you know, hot cake. Right. I just want a good chocolate cake with good chocolate frosting. That's my favorite thing. I love it. Oh wow. <laughs> Um, I'm a, I'm a fruit pie kind of girl, <laughs> uh, sandwich or burrito sandwich. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you put on your sandwich? Um, lots of different veggies. I love just deli Turkey, good roast Turkey on there. Mm-hmm. Hummus, um, and do you follow a recipe or do you wing it? I do a little bit of both. A lot of times I read about five different recipes and then I sort of <laughs> meld them all together. <laughs> Yeah, I do the same thing. Yep. <laughs> but I, I use them for ideas and then I kind of, you know, improvise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Well, Tina, thank you so much for joining us on What Are You Hungry For? This has been an absolutely delightful conversation. And to our listeners out there, thank you for listening to this episode of What Are You Hungry For? Be sure to visit us at www.atozcookingschool.org for more information about our classes. You can also make a donation, which helps us expand our classes to teach kids at more organizations. Stay fresh, everybody.